heavily, I'm a clown. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. This is episode number 10. My guest today is Michael Goldstein, founder of the Nakamoto Institute and co-host of the Noted Podcast. Michael has a computer science background along with a strong passion for libertarian and Austrian economics and philosophies and is generally known on Twitter as one of the kings of Bitcoin memeing. In fact, he was the guy that was recently suspended on Twitter for telling journalists to learn to code, and some journalists in particular were saying that it's extremely offensive anytime anybody with a uh, anime avatar reaches out to them and, and tells them that they should learn to code after complaining about their job, and Michael helpfully reached out to them and said that if they learned to code, they could probably use Twitter API to automatically block anybody with anime avatars, and I think that that ended up getting his Twitter account suspended. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can subscribe. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast services like Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, over cast, etc, etc. You can find out more information about the show or see all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com. And you can also find links there that make it easy for you to support the show or get in contact with me if you have any questions or comments. Without further ado, let's jump right into my interview with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. Hey guys, I record all of my podcasts using a service called Anchor, and I was trying to get into podcasting, and a lot of the services that I was looking at wanted to charge me like pretty substantial monthly fees and limit my storage, and just basically nickel and dime me to death, and then one of my friends actually recommended Anchor to me, and I started using it right away, and I was blown away with how great the service is. It's completely 100% free for all of your podcast hosting. And not only that, as soon as you start a podcast, Anchor matches you with sponsors and your very first sponsor will be Anchor. So you'll get paid to create content with Anchor for Anchor and Anchor pays you to create content for free on their platform. It's so much above, like head and shoulders above any of the other podcasting services out there. Uh, So I would really encourage you if you're interested in podcasting, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Michael, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Colin. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Oh, definitely. I'm actually quite glad I was able to get an esteemed member of the Nakamoto Institute and noted podcast here on the show today. So if you guys don't know, uh, Michael here is one of the co-founders, I believe, of the Nakamoto Institute. Could you tell us... Co-founder and president. Co-founder and president. Can you tell us a little bit about the Nakamoto Institute for anybody listening right now that has no idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, how long of the story do we want? (laughs) I would like to hear the whole story. Okay, Uh, I'll try to give a a pretty good uh, synopsis of things. Um, So uh, I think this really all started with the, uh, at the University of Texas, we had a libertarian group called Libertarian Longhorns. um, And a spinoff group of that that I formed was the Mises Circle, where we focused on Austrian economics. Um, so we're just reading uh, the works of Mises and Hayek, Rothbard, Hoppe, the whole the whole spiel. And um, in this time, uh, Bitcoin 
came to came to our minds. Uh, it actually originally came before that in in 2011. Um, co-founder Daniel Krawitz uh, from both of these groups uh, had told me about it, and I watched the the Mount Gox bubble, you know, where it went up to thirty dollars and then crashed to under a dollar. And I mostly forgot about Bitcoin except for uh, learning about the Silk Road, which I thought was a a very cool um, idea from you know just a, a libertarian perspective. Um, but then at the end of 2012. Um, Cody Wilson of Defense Distributed, uh, who is a student at the time at the law school at the University of Texas, came to a Libertarian Longhorns meeting to give a talk about the almost political philosophy uh, and sort of uh, philosophy of, of revolution, so to speak, uh, at, at our group. And in this, you know, he's, he's waxing poetic about what it will mean to be able to send a physical object through the internet, such as a gun, as this extreme political example. This was before that there was even any kind of available product. It was still very much an idea. So, uh, if I could interrupt you for a second, did he mean, was he thinking about like stuff like 3D printed guns already, or was this, was this like... Yeah, so July 2012 uh, was when the, the original Wiki Weapon video had dropped. Uh, and as soon as I saw that, I was I was hooked on the idea because I've, um, yeah, as a libertarian, I've been you know staunchly pro gun rights yeah. and staunchly anti intellectual property, and this one product project uh, was attacking both of those things or like uh, fighting on behalf of of both of those ideals. Um, so yeah, so just the idea that now that the internet exists you can send physical objects through the internet. Hmm. That's just, that, that's the way the world is now. And in this talk, he also went into the crypto anarchists where Tim May uh, started talking about very similar things in the vein of, well, now that the internet exists and now that strong cryptography is out in the world, there are certain consequences. And as he's describing, you know, sending guns through the internet, you know, or physical physical objects of any kind that you can print out in a 3D printer. Uh, he also used, you know, the example of you can also send gold through the internet, uh, through, you know, Bitcoin. And it was in that moment that all of my confusion about Bitcoin, of it being some kind of fiat money because it was sort of made up, um, which is kind of a misunderstanding of money, but we can get into that later. Um all of that went away, and I was immediately hooked on Bitcoin, crypto anarchy, um, and using technology as a tool to carve out more freedom in the world. So can you explain to me, what were the mental processes that you went through when you transitioned from um, Bitcoin is sort of like fake internet money to Bitcoin is like digital gold? What was that transition yeah. like for you? Um, well, maybe I should finish up the the story first. Sure. And then we can get into that topic. Um, I'll, I'll try to get through it quickly. Basically, in in 2013, I remember meeting uh, Tur Demeester for the first time. He had visited Austin uh, to to work on uh, you know a project, and I met him at a meetup. And we were joking how there's a Ludwig von Mises Institute for Austrian economics. How great would it be if there was a Satoshi Nakamoto Institute for crypto anarchy and like all good jokes there's a you know kernel of truth in that and uh eventually later on in in the year in november i i 
um, you know, bought a domain name and just threw some stuff up online um, and formed the Nakamoto Institute with uh, Pierre Rochard and Daniel Krawitz. And uh, we eventually, I, I, was, I was curating all of the great crypto anarchist literature that I was diving into and that I could get my hands on. Um, we integrated all of the economic analyses that we had done at uh, the Misi Circle and, uh, of course, brought together all of Satoshi's public writings. And a big point of this was this was a time when uh, bankers were first starting to kind of get interested in Bitcoin in 2013. It was not not like necessarily the big bankers, but basically people who wanted to make a name for themselves. And what was coming with that was a desire to like bend over for the banks and almost turn Bitcoin into this thing that could be palatable to bankers, which in turn, you know, as we see with with, uh, you know, failed attempts like Segwit2x, these kinds of ventures can also quickly turn into i want to control bitcoin on behalf of the bankers so because this was happening the satoshi nakamoto institute was meant to be a you know specter haunting the internet that says no matter what you want to believe about bitcoin these are the roots of bitcoin um it is a it is a strongly ideological project um you know, there can be debates over, you know, what specifically were the core ideologies that Satoshi was was uh, targeting. But it does have it, it does come from this, you know, strongly ideological culture. And uh, y- you can't change that. It's, it's always going to be this inherently sort of um, anarchist capitalist project if you will um you know perhaps those those labels specifically might might mean different things to different people but it bitcoin is what it is and you can't change it and by by having these resources there people will always you know be able to access the works of tim may and nick zabo and whoever else to fully understand and appreciate where bitcoin is coming from so that you know when someone tries to show up and say, oh, well, you know, oh, the, the, the libertarians just won't matter as much in the future. Well, <laughs> we'll have to remember that Bitcoin will remain a libertarian project that everyone gets to benefit from. So, yeah. Uh, do you want me to go into that to answer your question now? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I just want to comment on that real quick. I think that the term anarchy, it seems to stir up a lot of connotations in, in people's minds whenever they, like, you take the average person who falls their way into Bitcoin just because they heard about the price and suddenly they're reading like this crypto anarchist manifesto and they're just like, this isn't what I wanted to learn about at all. And and um, and then they get upset because they thought that cryptocurrency in general was apolitical. Um, because they made the mistake of thinking that it was just this crazy, cool, new internet money thing and has nothing to do with politics. And you'll actually see people get upset about this, like on Twitter or whatever, where they don't want, where they, they'll make the statement, don't interject politics into, into Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of hilarious because you look at those people and you're like, Bitcoin has been political since day one. Go look at the Genesis block. There's a very heated political statement in the Genesis block. Right, right. Well, and, you know, if someone like that, you know, came to me, I think, you know, the, the way I would try to explain things to them is that in a way, 
Bitcoin is trying to be apolitical. It's the fact that politics exists that Bitcoin seems political. Mm. Uh, but really, it's actually like it's the most sort of a neutral money that has ever existed. Um, and it, it's trying to take out the political process from money creation and and the the management of the money supply and and all of that and so in a sense it is very apolitical mm -hmm. it's just that our our world you know because we're a bunch of apes running around uh we're a very political species and uh because of that to to take a stand of like hey let's make it so that you can't control this thing you want to control that takes on an obviously like very political stance mm. um but for that person who wants to be apolitical they should you know like i said think of it in terms of well actually we're, we are trying to remove politics from it we don't want anyone to simply be able to you know uh whip up a mob frenzy and be able to change the money supply or a you know any kind of demagogue or you know any kind of political structure to be able to just on a whim decide that money ought to be anything but um, what the what 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 best suits the people using it? Uh, I one more question about something you said, and then let's circle back to the to the gold idea. But you you said that there was a lot of pressure internally that you were kind of noticing early on uh, to sort of let the bankers co-opt what was going on in order to make it more palatable for, for their use case. Where do you think that that pressure was coming from? Do you think it was coming internally from the libertarian community, people that just wanted this to succeed no matter what it took? No, I, I think that, you know, it's been so long. I, I don't want to, like, sit around and name names of all the people I remember. Uh, but basically what I think it was was people who wanted to have, an, like, a sort of upstart in uh, the Wall Street world. And by presenting Bitcoin... You know, you get to be that guy that does this new thing. And in order to do that, you, you start to think of, oh, how can I make this more accepted by these people who think it's absolutely crazy? Um, and it's like, oh, it's not this, you know, crazy, you know, libertarian thing or whatever. It's actually this uh, thing that we can, you know, bring regulation to and we can we can control in the ways that suits us. Um, and n not all of that is completely like evil or anything, but it does, it, when, you, when you speak like this, you have to be extremely careful with what you mean uh, because it can quickly um, turn into all sorts of, uh, you know, shall we say like authoritarian control things. And quite frankly, it also just does not, jive with how bitcoin actually functions so you're not going to do very well with bitcoin if you imagine like oh well we can just you know do this action to to change uh the protocol to meet our needs sure yeah i, th I think that there's you can see a lot of goalposts shifting uh in the bit in the bitcoin space whenever people have a plan and for whatever reason bitcoin doesn't accommodate whatever particular plan they had you see a lot of goalposts shifting segwit2x is a great example uh yeah uh, my, my stance on that is that you know for instance like if you have a business model that uh does not work well with bitcoin 
it's not Bitcoin's fault. It's your business model's right. fault. Right. And so what, what would your response be to, like, say, the Winklevoss twins who say that cryptocurrencies need more regulation? Um, I, I think this goes back to just, you know, a lot of libertarian debates about what regulation actually means. And as a libertarian, I'm not against regulation per se. You know, in my own life, I, you know, I have certain disciplines, you know, certain ways of, of living my life. I, I regulate uh, my behavior in a certain way. And naturally, when you work with other people, you're going to find social conventions that work uh, so that you can, you can, you know, uh, uh, operate, uh, cooperate much better. Um, but that's, of course, different from trying to bring in um government force and coercion to uh, uh compel others to to follow a certain type of regulation so it's it's almost just like a, a an argument of sort of a bottom up versus top down uh thing uh now that being said uh you know to bring it back in the real world i'm open to discussions about the fact that the government exists whether you like it or not, and therefore there's certain uh, strategic um, things you need to do, certain ways of, of, of working with them to keep them from uh, trying to do something that would be harmful to the, to the ecosystem. Um, so once again, it's, it's really, you just have to be very careful with, with how you, you speak about that when you're trying to introduce the regulation hmm. uh, are you are you trying to uh, encourage best practices or are you trying to uh, unnecessarily make people's lives harder and remove competition and stuff like that hmm. I think that's a really good point I I think yeah if I th if I'm thinking about this as just Joe Schmo American regulation to me means the government making sure it's safe um, but if I'm thinking about this from shit-posting libertarian internet crypto anarchist, I'm thinking regulation means top-down control. Um, and I don't really want either of those things. <laughs> I, I want, uh, yeah, what, what you're saying, sort of a bottom-up approach. Right. I mean, I think uh, being, the government is not the only thing that will keep us safe. And in fact, we can come up with a gazillion uh, examples of how the government has uh, explicitly done the opposite of keeping mm. us safe. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so let's return uh, to my earlier question. I had, you you had mentioned that you had a had sort of an aha moment where you were like suddenly okay, Bitcoin's not just stupid fake internet money. It's not World of Warcraft gold. This is literal digital gold that I can send to some guy in Australia without having any sort of third party intervening on my mm -hmm. behalf. Can you tell us what that transition was like for you? How did you arrive? How did you arrive at point B from point A? Well, so I remember in 2011, uh, sitting down at my computer, installing Bitcoin QT. This was before there was even called Bitcoin Core. It was just, you know, Bitcoin, it was the QT interface for Bitcoin. I remember installing it and it opened up and my balance was zero. You know, probably said something about syncing or whatever. It was a very simple interface at the time. Um, not that it's that much more complex now. And, uh, you know, five minutes later, I was like, okay, I don't, I don't get it. You know, it was just 
boring and I, I uninstalled it and forgot it. And from then on, you know, it was just sort of this feeling of like, oh, well, someone just made up this money. Um, and so it was like, uh, it's, you know, it's not really backed by, by gold or whatever, or uh, it's actually almost hard to say what exactly my feeling was. It was just like I, I was defaulting to because it's not gold. You know, I was, I was a libertarian. I, I, I wanted a gold standard. So because it was not gold, I assumed it was just what we would call fiat money. Um, and so I think that's why it was just one simple rhetorical device, which was calling Bitcoin gold that you send through the internet that flipped my mind so that I could reapproach Bitcoin with a, a, you know, a better mindset. Um, and because of that, you know, it, it quickly fell into place. That caused me to look into it and, and learn about how Bitcoin actually creates scarcity, um, which if, you, if I, I think the, the intellectual property um, debates more than anything sort of uh, honed my mind at, the, at the, the ability to like understand the importance of scarcity in uh, property rights and property theory. And um, going forward from that, uh, I, I was able to, you know, better understand, you know, what is and is not fiat money. And it, it, even if it was simply made up, that's not necessarily the, a, a good way to describe fiat money because fiat um, definitionally means by decree. So it's like this is, this is money because I say it's money. That's why the U.S. dollar is is fiat money. However, you know, if you just make something up, like World of Warcraft gold or whatever, and and people for whatever reason decide to start using it, that's not that's not fiat in the sense that no one was forcing to them to use it. It's not necessarily the best money because there are qualities that make some goods better at performing the functions of money than other goods. Um, but ultimately, like that, that term fiat comes down to is it government decree or is it not government decree? Um, because if it's not government decree and it's, you know, paper money, it just won't do well in the market because it can't satisfy um, the, the, those, uh, the, those functions. Um, so I think that was, that was a major kind of fix in my mind um, and moving away from, you know, simply thinking of physical gold as money and thinking more broadly and abstractly about the nature of money. Hmm. I, I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, we, we don't like nowadays we don't think about money in the way that the rest of the world would have thought about money for the vast majority of human existence. It's it's so normal for us to think about, well, of course, money is government decree. Uh, of course, it's it's paper bills that have dead people's faces on them. Um, and and I could see how, you know, given a government-sponsored education, you could come to the conclusion that even back in the days of gold and silver coins, money was a government decree because it, back then it had faces stamped on it too. Um, but right. the difference between then and now, you know, is there wasn't legal tender laws forcing you to use the slips of paper over gold and silver. Uh, that, that's a really good point that you made there. Right. And I mean, there, there's... A lot of interesting ideas. I don't even know how well I'd be able to like articulate them at this moment, but just uh, parsing like the different pieces of money production of actually like just having gold versus, for instance, like the coinage of gold. Um, 
which is an extremely important step because um, gold is very expensive to determine if it's gold. You know, if someone handed you a a piece of tungsten that looked like gold, you know, had gold wrapping or whatever, like foil or whatever they use, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference just by looking at it. And you just as a person without a, you know, laboratory or whatever else, like you're not going to be able to sit there and figure out like, yes, this is gold or no, this is not gold. And so the purpose of coining it is that you do have like the official stamp of someone you trust saying, yeah, here's, here's, something that's actually gold so that when you receive it um you know it's it's that just like you know if uh like uh on i guess is it the the quarters you know it it has the ridges on it and uh part of that i think actually that might be there's some kind of weird anti-counterfeiting stuff that you see in money i i don't want to go into that thing so or uh, the one i do know for sure is like there's a little strip of paper within the bill on like $20 bills and stuff. And so you can hold it up to the light. You know, that's that's a way that you as an individual can like, you know, absolutely determine. It's like, okay, this is a proper uh, uh, bill. Um, and Bitcoin is interesting because it kind of does away with all of that. It, it puts the mining, so to speak, you know the the digging the resource out of the ground or you know producing the resource into a, a usable form uh with the coinage which is just sort of the original you know proof of work timestamp um and everything else is just a, a chain of signatures from that and so it's it's all kind of uh it gets rid of that that middleman that has to uh Kind of be a a center of trust there isn't really a need for trust um it's all just sort of mathematical based uh, which is very cool um and definitely helps us in uh, removing ourselves from that notion of money as uh, a thing with pictures of dead people <laughs> because there's not even a need for that because when you pull it out of the the act of pulling bitcoins into the universe comes with uh that which turns it into this thing that'll be a chain of signatures that you can verify Hmm. very interesting so i am curious personally uh and and then i I actually i'm curious personally how did you find yourself in in the libertarian way of thinking It's, it's very atypical how did you and how did you get to the point where you were reading uh, Mises and Rothbard in college with a bunch of nerds in a reading group. Um, you know, I just like to be right about things. <laughs> um, I would say it goes back to high school. I mean, uh, middle school. Um, I became a big fan of uh, like Penn and Teller, the the magicians, mm-hmm. and they kind of opened me up to some libertarian ideas via you know uh, their tv show and um some of the other content that they produced um so that kind of you know prepped me on on some of the uh ideas of like hey maybe gun control is not all of what you think it is maybe even things like recycling are not as cracked up uh you know as 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 good as you might think and that maybe it's just like pushed because of a government thing and not because it's actually economic or or good for the planet 
Um, maybe we and, would still have roads if we didn't pay taxes. <laughs> you know, maybe. <laughs> you never know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's well, I won't go into that topic. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was kind of opened up to that. So. I was already, I, I've always been a bit of an iconoclast and, you know, I remember in early high school before I was a libertarian, I was, I was reading people like H.L. Mencken um, and some others. And I always, I, I, I always kind of identified with the, the sort of just free, free speaking, free thinking uh, individuals out there. And uh, the big turning point was after the uh, financial crisis. Um, when I realized that I actually knew nothing about economics. Mm. I heard all these people talking about, you know, like foreclosures and they were talking about, you know, this and that about the market and everything people were talking about with the, uh, the entirety of the housing bubble and the financial collapse and all this, the word recession, these things, I realized that I knew nothing Mm -hmm. about what any of that meant. And it just so happened that the person that I happened to ask to send me some resources, like, hey, I want to learn a little bit about economics, sent me uh, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, the essay, and some links to uh, some Rothbard stuff on Mises.org. And I read a couple of paragraphs of um, I Pencil, and <laughs> within a couple paragraphs, is like, okay, I actually kind of understand you know, what a market was. And I had actually, I, I guess I should say, I, I had been reading a little bit of just like a plain economics textbook. So there was some, you know, basic stuff that I had picked up um, from that, you know, for, for, for better or worse from those uh, mainstream textbooks. But, um, you know, a, a couple paragraphs in, it really like struck home of like, this is what a market is. And like, obviously you don't want to mess with that. Hmm. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then, you know, just to send me to Mises.org where there's unlimited, you know, literature on the topic. Um, when you, when you throw someone like me in that, I'm going to consume all of it. And I did. Um, and so I spent, you know, the last two years of high school, uh, just taking all of it in. And then of course, basically all of college, um, you know, I was, I wasn't studying economics in college, but. In, in all of my free time and stuff, I was reading a lot of um, economics, especially through uh, Mises.org. Um, so that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, mm. It was basically just uh, just uh, happened to ask the right person online, uh, and they sent me sent me the right stuff. I, I had a similar experience where uh, I, I I just recognized in myself that I didn't understand anything about markets or economics and i'm like why is the whole world melting down you know why is our money getting worth less and less uh why why did the housing bubble happen those types of questions well what caused the great depression and i did i did i wasn't even consciously asking those questions so much as those were just things i had always wondered and uh i i had always noticed that some of the more even keeled intelligent people i had known were really big ron paul fans and one day I was like, I'm going to find out more about this Ron Paul guy. And he's actually the one that sent me down the, the, the rabbit hole of Austrian economics yeah. after I read and the Fed. And then from there it was game over, man. I read Creature from, or Creature from Jekyll Island. and Right. Oof. G. Edward Griffin. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about Ron Paul is I, I had a friend in high school who was kind of a Ron Paul fan. 
Um, and I do remember watching uh, a clip from one of the debates in 2007 where he was going at it with Rudy Giuliani about um, 9-11, and Ron Paul was, was giving his shtick, basically a part of his foreign policy, policy shtick of like, hey, let's try to understand why would they do this to us. Um, and it was I, I remember after that moment being, okay, it's like, this guy's a Republican, but he's a cool Republican. <laughs> Uh, and I kind of just knew him as like, okay, he's like the cool old grandpa, you know, Republican or whatever, Republican grandpa. And uh, it wasn't until years later, after I was digging into all the Austrian economics and whatnot, I kept seeing Ron Paul come up, mm-hmm. uh, like his name come up on Mises.org. And over time, I was like, oh, wait, like that, he was totally like talking about this stuff. Um, so only in, in retrospect did I realize like, oh, I should have been paying more attention uh, at the time, uh, but yeah, yeah. I, th- <laughs> so I, think, I got in through it through Rothbard and then Ron Paul rather than the other way around. I think even back in the Reagan administration days, they called uh, Ron Paul the No Man in Washington because yeah, Doctor No. Yeah, everything would come down and they'd vote on it, and he, he it would be like three hundred something to one, and every single time Ron <laughs> Paul was that one guy saying, "Nope, this is a bad idea. Nope, this is a bad idea." Uh, so what? Well, what would you say has been your most influential book that you've ever read? <laughs> that I've ever read? Yeah, in in, in regards to these types of things, this topic. Um, man, that's that's a that's a tough question. Um, I guess if I could offer like a few to kind of, uh, I'll give you I, I'll give you three. Three, you okay, because like I I wouldn't say that it's just like, uh a single thing there's there's so much going into this so the three i would say uh the first one was for a new liberty by rothbard uh which i read in high school and that just took me down the uh rabbit hole of like what it really means to be a libertarian and why it makes sense um and uh kind of like the the, the tenets of anarcho-capitalism if you will and then um, the next one was Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, which teaches you basically everything you need to know about um, Austrian economics. Um, and on top of that, Mises is just an absolutely brilliant thinker. Um, and it, his entire writing style is just, <laughs> just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and also just this argumentation. He would, I, one thing I would notice when reading this book is that you know he has he has a litany of enemies to take down, and what he does with each one is gives them everything they could want in their argument. He gives them everything, uh, and then he takes them down. Hmm. So he gives them all of their assumptions. He, he like he, he's very thorough in his uh, intellectual dis- uh, destruction of his enemies. Um, and then finally, I would say the last one would be uh, Democracy, the God That Failed by Hans-Hermann Hoppe, um, which just takes all of this to a whole new level by making you um, rethink a lot of government structures. So, like, a lot of libertarians want to engage themselves in the political process. And after you read Hans-Hermann Hoppe's uh, critiques of democracy, you realize that that's probably not a game you actually want to be playing or wasting time with um on top of that it's also just a phenomenal book about time preference and understanding the role of time preference in society um with 
certain types of government structures being the uh, cause of a heightened or lowered time preference such that, you know, when if, if you have a, you know, this kind of socialist government, you're going to have higher time preference and look what happens. If you have this more liberty focused government, uh, you're going to have a lower time preference and civilization is going to happen. Um, so that that was really powerful uh, book. So uh, I would say those three kind of like set the stage for for everything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I actually first heard about that book when you brought it up on the Noted podcast. I think it was like six months ago, and I read it, and I was like, whoa. (laughs) That book is the ultimate red pill, I would say. Yeah, he does does not hold back. (laughs) Um, All right, so I'm uh, actually one more question before I completely shift gears on you. How has Bitcoin changed the way you think in terms of Austrian economics, if it has at all, has it influenced the way you've thought as a libertarian, as terms of what's possible, the way things should be versus the way they ought to be? Or, um, that that's an interesting question. I mean, one thing I would say is that you know, I I would not understand Bitcoin at all if it had not been for Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that understanding Austrian economics is is vital to. You know, understanding Bitcoin as a money, which you know is its primary purpose. Um, as far as like how it's changed my views on Austrian economics, I mean, I think I think some of it might just be shifting focus of of or, or introducing concepts that I may have not thought of as much before. Like um, network governance hmm. is something that I think we can think about from. You know, a praxeological point of view, uh, you know, just like subjective actors, you know, engaging in a social consensus. Like that's a very interesting thing. And it's actually, I think, more broadly applicable with, you know, Bitcoin being the uh, strong form of it because there is nothing you can do to change someone's node uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, an actual real life, you know, it's much easier to wield force against different people to get them to to change their behavior um but because of that it certainly you know just introduces new things to be thinking of uh with regard to you know how how society functions like it's it's hard once you once you learn about bitcoin it's very difficult and i and i think there's a reason for this uh to not kind of look at everything through a bitcoin lens you know Hmm. for instance I mean, this is going back to the the money part of things. But if someone's trying to tell you about like fiat money, you know, try to think of it like what would this look like in a blockchain? And when you think through the protocol from a blockchain, it's just absolutely absurd. <laughs> um, and likewise, you know, with with uh, Bitcoin has a strong focus on self sovereignty, so it of course makes you, you know, look look at around you is like where where do I have self sovereignty? Where can I carve out more? And uh, what are the effects of that? Um, I don't know if I have like a, a better answer for you, but I think it's just sort of you get a more Bitcoin perspective on things. But uh, all of the Austrian economics still stands. And in fact, I, um, I've, I've now been going back and trying to relearn a lot of Austrian stuff to get an even better handle on it hmm. um, now that there's new light. 
Yeah. Uh, as a quick aside, one of the things that I see the traditional libertarians, especially the ones that are a little bit older, like our parents' age, um, they they get really hung up on the fact that that there's no underlying quote unquote intrinsic value that there's bitcoin's not pegged to a any sort of commodity um mm-hmm. those are really big hang-ups for those people and i i for, that's just i guess that's just something you don't really think about uh until you start dealing with bitcoin because it really wasn't possible uh, until bitcoin right. came along right and yet you know my my retort to that is just like well what backs gold right right and there's obviously nothing that backs gold and you can get into much deeper topics about scarcity and, and sort of the the um, abstract concepts and qualities uh, that make these goods uh, right. valuable rather than uh, just the, the physical nature is just one component of it, but maybe it's actually a detriment in some ways. Maybe it's a positive in other ways, but it's it's not the key ingredient to what makes gold valuable. Right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of misconception, unfortunately, even in the gold bug uh, Austrian circles that think, you know, well, gold holds its value because I can melt it down and put it in circuit boards. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> okay. Well, so I, I'm going to, I warned you, but we're, here comes the gear shift. Um, I'm, I'm a listener and I'm at home right now and I'm thinking, okay, this guy makes sense. You know, I get it. Scarcity, sound money, social consensus. I think he's right. I think uh, cryptocurrencies are the future. I'm going to go load up on some Litecoin uh, and ride this sucker all the way to the moon. What, what, do you, what would you say to me? Um... Well, I mean, I guess it would, I'd be first interested in like how you managed to listen to all of my stuff and come to. <laughs> well, Litecoin Litecoin's obviously your, your undervalued if you if you look at the prices compared to Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin probably isn't going to go up that much more, but Litecoin. Right. Okay. So this brings up like a, a very interesting point, and it's it's one about money in general, and it's about monetary competition in general, which is the reason that a money is valuable is because it is the most liquid good. In fact, money is defined as the most liquid good in, the, and in an economy. So if we believe that a cryptocurrency is going to become like true money, you know, right now there's, there's been, you know, sort of little quibbles over time. It's like, oh, well, Bitcoin's a currency, but not a money. And in some ways, like when you take strict definitions, Bitcoin is not a money globally speaking and i would also say this is a subjective concept because i could live in a world where it is my most liquid good and i don't even have to interface with other uh currencies and thus it is my money but from a global perspective you know i can't go to a random person and have an expectation that they will be um accepting uh bitcoin as a medium of exchange so with this in mind there's a long way to go you know, a, a money has not reached its full potential until you can go around and expect any random person to accept it as a, a medium of exchange. Much the way that today, pretty much anywhere in the world, if you have U.S. dollars in hand, you're going to be able to purchase goods with it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, and because of that, you know, yes, like Bitcoin has grown substantially more than Litecoin. Um, and every other currency. In fact, this is one of the funny things about the Bitcoin dominance index is that 
I, 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 I'm going to assume that it's still at like 50% or something. I have no, I, I don't even pay attention. But um, if that's the case, it's like even with all of these ICOs and things that should not even be contained in this monetary competition uh, sort of index, despite that fact, Bitcoin is still that much more liquid than everything else combined. And that's how powerful Bitcoin is. Mm -hmm. So when you have a money, you know, liquidity is something that has a positive feedback loop. So, you know, this is, it's, you know, it has network effects and it, it, it works on an exponential level. So it's, you know, when, when someone enters it, they're leaving another network. And in a sense, you could say Bitcoin, if they enter Bitcoin, has doubled in, in, in some sense, you know, per Metcalf's law, for instance, while the other network has decreased by a factor of two, you know, it's halved. And so there's a feedback loop. And like, if, if you're a new entrant to the space, you don't want to be stuck with the money that no one, no one else is going to be using. You want to be getting the one that you can have uh, expectation of future liquidity. Hmm. So with that in mind, like Bitcoin's already winning on that. And it's, it's hard to come up with reasons why Bitcoin would lose that. And as far as like total growth, you know, Bitcoin still has so far to go. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're looking for profits, you know, given a low enough time preference, you'll be able to do very well um, if, if that's what you're going for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, well, I know your your cohort, Pierre, likes to say all the time, liquidity begets liquidity, which is exactly yes. what you were just yes. getting at. Exactly. Um, which I think, you know, anybody who hasn't, like, traded penny stocks or, like, I, I don't know, like, traded junk bonds or something, like, anybody who hasn't directly dealt with liquidity, I would imagine it has a difficult time conceptualizing it because it's sort of an abstract concept until you deal with something that's a liquid, you know, we're so used to dealing with li liquid money on a regular basis, like the dollar, like you said, I think we take liquidity for granted in a way. Mm -hmm. and, um, what I was just thinking was you sort of compare it to like a stack of beanie babies in your attic or like a button collection, you know, it's like, yeah, it might have some value to somebody somewhere, uh, but good luck finding them and yeah good exactly luck. yeah and even if you find them like good luck not being the 15th guy to knock on his door that day trying to sell your button collection to the one <laughs> potential buyer um i don't know it's but to me yeah the, the biggest thing is is the liquidity thing you know uh coin coin market book.cc i think is what it's called has the uh, buy volume or buy support volume for Bitcoin and then like all the other cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin's like probably a hundred times or more liquidity than most of these other cryptocurrencies. Right. And we look at them and a lot of them, you know, they might even have a somewhat nice price given what the offering actually is. Um, but it also just has no liquidity. So it's like no one's buying or selling it in the first place. So of course it's just whatever price people claim it is. It's not, it's not until you like, if you don't have that liquidity, you don't have as much, uh, you know, market, uh, price discovery either, um, to really determine how much the market values it, which in this case is kind of because it's so illiquid is probably basically not at all. 
Right, right, and it really makes like the the fund managers look foolish. Who like last like a year ago were buying up like stupid shit coins in mass with hopes that they appreciate is like who are you gonna sell these to later on like what would you expect like a bigger more liquid fund manager is gonna come in and bail you out like it just doesn't make any sense to me right i mean i you know play stupid games win stupid prizes <laughs> uh that's that's uh you know degenerate gambling behavior for you um I don't think any of those people were thinking on a five to 10 year timeline or even longer. Uh, and I don't think that their business ever has um, very likely. So of course mm. it probably doesn't even occur to them about like future liquidity. It's just like they see, they see the trend now and they want to kind of get in and on it now and do what they can and not worry about later. I feel like that could be a whole episode in and of itself. The time preferences of businesses in our in our current corporate culture of fiat money. Mm-hmm. That's uh, something absolutely. I think about a lot. Uh, I I think that there's a lot of issues with that. Yeah. So, uh, Pompliano. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Pomp. He he. I I love Pomp. I I listen to his uh, podcast a lot, and but he does say some things that. You know, I might disagree with him a lot. I'm trying to get him on the show sometime soon. Um, he talks a lot about the future tokenized economy. Do you have mm-hmm. any thoughts on a tokenized economy and, and what that might look like? And do you think that that holds any merit? Um, okay, so this is a, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, the reason being is, like, I'm, I'm not necessarily against the concept of a token, Mm-hmm. What I'm against is the concept of a token that requires its own blockchain, mm-hmm. um, which is effectively saying create its own money, mm-hmm. which is effectively saying let's go back to a barter economy. Because mm-hmm. if you uh, having more monies in the an economy is not like people want to think that it's like oh well it's good for like different niche things or whatever. It's like no, what you want out of the money is just like a liquid good that you can go you know, spend somewhere uh, that you can, you can use to uh, obtain other goods. If uh, I think of it, if you have a world where everything is operating on its own blockchain, you're effectively like wanting to live in a gift card world. It's like, okay, I'm going to acquire, you know, like $10 at, at Target and $8 at uh, 7-Eleven. And it's like, okay, well, like, what if you want to go shop at Walmart? Well, then you have to go find someone who wants to sell you that. It's like, or you could just have Bitcoins or dollars and go spend it at all three. Like, one of those is clearly economically preferable, and it's absurd to think otherwise. That being said, you know, I have no nothing against the concept of a cryptographic token just as a concept. Um, in fact, I, I use them all the time. Um, you know, when we when we sign into websites, they um, often websites will like you know use a cookie or um, issue a uh, you know a, a JWT token or some kind of scheme so that every time you go back to the website and you present that token or cookie or whatever, they know that it's you. So they can give you the the relevant data that you're looking for. So that's it. Cryptographic tokens are are very useful for um, authentication. Um, so, and, and I think you could also imagine having a company that issues cryptographic tokens um, to represent 
some kind of uh, ownership of something. Um, the difference, though, is that it's it's still centralized, and there's no reason to pretend it needs to be anything but. And the reason is is that a, a blockchain can't change the nature of physical resources. It's sort of this self-referential thing. So a, a company still has, you know, people and uh, resources that get managed. And no matter what the blockchain shows, someone still has control of it. So hmm. we shouldn't pretend that we can like, oh, well, it's on a blockchain. Therefore, everything is decentralized because no, in some ways you've helped sort of decentralize the ownership. Like things are uh, the, the keys that get to maintain a claim uh, are individually held, which can have some benefits, I suppose. Um, I, I do think, um, but you know, if that person loses their keys, it's not like the, the nature of that company changes. Um, in fact, it would make sense to me if they could, if they could somehow, you know, prove some kind of identification, like issue them a new one and like basically erase that other one from the system. It's almost like you don't want an immutable blockchain for something like that. Um, so in that case, like I can imagine in my head, uh, I should say, like, you know, various schemes of using cryptographic tokens for all sorts of, um, you know, internet-based stuff and, like, uh, communication protocols. Uh, however, it's it's not nearly, like, that, that, that doesn't require an ICO. Mm -hmm. It doesn't require anything. It's literally just a cryptographic token. It's, it's in nobody's, some ways, it's not special at all. It's kind of nobody's like, going to get rich except for maybe the software developer who makes it happen. <laughs> yeah, who gets paid to have made it happen, not right. because they're you know like uh, selling them in the ICO. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that the gift card example is really, really good because if you've ever bought a gift card or gotten like my example, I've been given gift cards as like gifts uh, for like a store that I'm not interested in shopping at. Well, you can take that gift card and you can sell it, you know, at a marketplace online at like a 10 to 20 percent discount. Um, mm -hmm. You're not going to get fair market value for that gift card and the reason is because it's a liquid you know you can only use it at that one location and even if like let's say walmart had a 20 percent off sale store-wide there's not going to be premium demand for the gift cards to shop at walmart because you can always just go and pay with cash like bitcoin yeah. is a really good example of that like if i can use already use bitcoin for everything there's not going to be a premium demand for this unlimitedly issued like pseudo fiat currency <laughs> which is a gift card right right yeah Going back to the, the tokens thing, I think this is why, you know, I'm, I'm more interested when you have stuff like Blockstream Liquid. Mm -hmm. I find that much more interesting than the standard like, ICO stuff because it expressly like Liquid, for instance, is basically it is the decentralized ownership. You, you send someone this sort of bearer certificate, which is just a mirror of what happens in the real world, like stocks i actually i say i i don't i don't actually really deal with stocks but i know at least at one point in time you literally had a piece of paper that represented you know shares mm -hmm. and you would physically hold it and this is just the digital equivalent of that but it's not trying to turn it into its own money in fact mm -hmm. the underlying uh money in the liquid system is liquid bitcoin uh meaning the the sidechain bitcoins which you can then, you know, move back into the uh, uh, Bitcoin 
like main chain or whatever. Hmm. So I, to me, that's that's more interesting by virtue of the fact that it's it's more analogous to how people actually use these things, and it's not trying to create new money. Mm-hmm. Um, if your if your idea requires creating a new money in order to exist, it's probably a bad idea. Hmm. Um, and the like, we, we have Bitcoin. There's really no need to create any new monies after that. <laughs> yeah. Uh... That's liquid is something I'm I'm super excited about. I was act, that was actually going to be my next question for you. Uh, was particularly what your thoughts on were about liquid and who knows if if liquid's going to be the answer. But side chains seem like they're going to solve a lot of those tokenization problems without all the scamminess involved. Um, there is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, and it, we were talking earlier about World of Warcraft gold. Um, you know. I don't think that from a, like a game dev- and I don't know if you're interested in video games at all, but like from a game development perspective, I wouldn't want my in-game currency to be like Bitcoin or dollars because as like a game developer, I have to incentivize certain behaviors that mm-hmm. have no real-world economic value, and I'm not gonna be willing to pay people real-world money that has like tangible outside use case and demand in my virtual world for completing an essentially menial worthless task right i have to incentivize them within my own ecosystem um so something like that i think maybe like a liquid sidechain that actually did have its own issuance uh scheme for the purposes of that ecosystem might potentially be uh might be interesting but that's a topic that i feel like needs more exploration yeah uh, this is a topic i i don't know enough uh except kind of some cursory stuff i don't i don't play a lot of video games but you do bring up an interesting point which is you know if you're making a video game uh you might not you might be degrading the quality of your video game if it's just a rich person can show up and just spend a lot of money and win the game Mm -hmm. as opposed to having to actually play like what's what's the point of having the game if you're not gonna like actually go through it and and play it right Um, right and and my my main point is that like you know there's no real world economic value for killing 10 virtual bears right but as a game developer i i want you to kill those 10 virtual bears but i can't incentivize you in real world economics i can only incentivize you within this simulation that i've created Um, yeah this being said i mean i know that uh was eve online there's the the currency is it isk I think it's called yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and there's whole like market exchanges and stuff. Like people take the economics of it extremely oh, yeah. seriously. Oh yeah. I, I would be interested like using Eve online from what I understand of it as sort of a model of uh, where you could find analogies to get started with um, a more Bitcoin ecosystem like find where it makes sense since it already has this this full infrastructure that even does you know interchange with the dollar uh but still maintains a giant uh platform uh that people have been using Uh, they've been playing it for you know decades now or whatever Mm -hmm. right and and there will always be that problem of you know it kind of comes full circle is like okay well now we're back to a central authority issuing a currency um, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to go load up on ISK because I think it's going to double in value over the next 10 years. Like that's Bitcoin is, is even if ISK has huge, you know, utility demand because you need it to buy starships or whatever. Um, 
why would I want that over a deflationary currency? Right. I mean, to me, like my my favorite MMO RPG or whatever they're called uh, is just real life itself, <laughs> uh, where you have you 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 get spawned as a character and you go out into the world and you see, you know, the kind of stuff you want to do. And there's a built in you know currency that people are using, and you can go uh, do stuff so you can stack sats. <laughs> Uh, and you know, achieve the the whatever, and it's uh, there's a four world. It's in like uh, amazing frame rate. The graphics are incredible. Um, so highly no, recommend it. Very rarely any downtime. Uh, it's, it's almost 100 percent uptime. Uh, other other than when you sleep, I guess. Uh, yeah, that someone should make like a like a Bitcoin real world life achievement list or something like that. But. Uh, I'm sure you'd, you'd probably oh, put yeah, yeah. Carniv- I mean, that would carnivory be, on there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that would actually be be fun. It's like achievement unlock stuff, but in real life. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I have uh, one more probably pretty deep question here, and then we'll, we'll get towards wrapping this up. Why do you think governments have let this go on for as long as they have do you think like because i this is something that i lay awake at night wondering is like (laughs) do they not understand what's going on do they think it's too late because there are a lot of people out there even avid bitcoiners who say that if they really wanted to they could still put a stop to this thing what are your thoughts on that right okay there's there's a couple things to tackle there one is i don't know the ultimate answer i i am not connected to um, you know, Wait, very powerful political you, figures. You didn't attend would, Bilderberger this year, <laughs> not not this year. Uh, okay. So I haven't gotten the latest the latest on that. Um, but so a couple things from my perspective. Um, one, when people say, "Oh, the government can just shut everything down," um, the government is very powerful. Um, I, I think it's hard to disagree with that. At the same time, I do think that there is a problem with treating the government as omnipotent um, because clearly it isn't. Um, it, it, you know, if, if it was, I think we would already be living in the sort of like end of history, so to speak. Um, but meanwhile, every day there's, there's new things that pop up that challenge everything about the existing structure. You know, we earlier we were talking about 3D printed guns. It's like, yeah, you have this whole apparatus. Uh, first of all, they, I mean, they haven't been able to get rid of, you know, they haven't actually been able to take away everyone's guns. And on top of that, like, the fundamentals have changed because now there's a whole online culture of people developing 3D printable weapons um, and, and getting around, uh, you know, gun control rules in that fashion. So, like, there is, I, I don't believe in that end of history. And uh, from that perspective alone, the government is not omnipotent because in order to be omnipotent, they would need to be able to control for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. They would be sort of omniscient as well. Um, The other thing is uh, with regards to Bitcoin, I mean, I do think that at times uh, in the history, uh, they probably could have put an end to it because there just wasn't enough social ideas. Like if... Satoshi, you know, uh, if, if the government had found out about Bitcoin right before Satoshi actually released it and they went and they killed him uh, and it never showed up in the world, the idea just would have never gotten out there and it wouldn't change whether or not it was a good idea. It wouldn't change anything except for the fact that no one else would know it and someone would have to rediscover it again, which, 
you know, it, who knows how long, if ever, that would that would take. Um, so at some point, yes, like the government, you know, and Satoshi actually, you know, got really worried after uh, WikiLeaks started accepting Bitcoin because that would be attracting the wrong attention to Bitcoin before it could handle it, um, which I think is a, a very, you know, valid uh, concern in hindsight it hasn't been an issue but I, I can understand why Satoshi would be uh, nervous about that um, but really I mean when we look at how central banks are talking about Bitcoin and I say central banks specifically because of anything in the government the thing that is most at risk with Bitcoin is the central banks now, governments will have to adapt because they will no longer have the free-flowing spigot of easy money to help fund stuff. But, you know, turning off that doesn't, like, magically take away, you know, the guns from the army, for instance. Mm -hmm. Like, that, all, the, all of those resources still exist in the world. Um, like I said, they're going to have to adapt. But, you know, the central bank is the one whose future is truly, you know, at risk. And when you look at the way that they talk about Bitcoin, I quite frankly, I don't think they do understand it. And where even where they do kind of understand it, they don't think that it really has a future anyway. Hmm. Um, so in many ways, it's like they they don't think much of it. You know, it's just this silly this silly internet thing. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's that's a big part of it. Another one is a, a an interesting argument that Daniel had put forth in uh, one of the articles on the Nakamoto Institute um, called uh, Bitcoin Shroud of Subtlety and Allure. It's basically making the argument that if you want to attack Bitcoin, that itself is an entrepreneurial act, meaning it takes time, it takes resources, it takes energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To even want to attack Bitcoin you need to know what the risks of Bitcoin are, um, and you need to know the you know sort of cost-benefit analysis of like, oh, I the risk of it is X, and that would be bad for me because Y and Z. But Bitcoin has is this funny thing where you can imagine people within the government. You know, the government is not a mon monolithic entity. Um, you can imagine people in the government looking at it and being like yeah this is kind of a risk to the central bank but hey i can get rich off it <laughs> and that alone is a sort of uh uh tension between individual risks and and uh desires versus organizational uh risks and desires and uh you know we've already seen in practice um at sort of extreme regards uh this playing out in favor of bitcoin um the best example is uh the one of the guys who is investigating uh ross ulbricht in the silk road who had uh his name was powers uh of course uh as as he rose up in the ranks to sort of infiltrate if i remember correctly they they basically they stole a lot of money they like started their own exchange there's like this whole thing where they were like basically going rogue I forget what exactly happened with him. Um, he may have been charged and even, you know, uh, 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 convicted of, you know, problems. But the point is, is like he was going rogue for Bitcoin in a way. Uh, so we already sort of see that happening. Um, 
And on top of all of this, I think at this point in 2019, even though Bitcoin is so small, when I first got into Bitcoin, whenever I brought it up to someone, no one knew what it was. And if you tried to explain it to them, it was like, whatever. It was like, good luck trying to get their heads around it. Now, today, people kind of, I, I actually like, will, will say like, uh, you know, they ask me what I'll do and I'll say something about, you know, I do this in Bitcoin if you know what that is or whatever. Because I still like almost don't expect people to know what it is, but I actually almost get a sense that it sounds patronizing to be like, of course I know what Bitcoin is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not to say they necessarily like have a deep understanding of Merkle trees and proof of work and all that. Just like they get that there's some internet money. Right. Yeah. And, um, and now instead of getting a confused look, you get kind of like a, how's that Oh, you're one of those you? guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we see in the, was it the CFTC hearings? Uh, you know, someone's, someone's daughter or someone's like niece or nephew mm-hmm. or whatever is into Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Dimon talks about uh, the CEO of Chase, uh, JP Morgan Chase, says that his daughter was buying Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all this stuff is happening. Like, which, by the way, if you're a politician, you know, it's going to be kind of hard for you to want to take up policies that uh, put you in the position of having to turn against your own family. Uh, that's like another uh, one of these like it actually goes along with that 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 other argument which is um you know it doesn't even just have to be the benefits for you it could just be like someone you love is getting really deep into bitcoin it's like if you take too hard of a stance like you don't want to send you don't want to send your family member to the gulag because they're kind of into this cool thing that's a great point um so we're seeing all of that then on top of that you also have to think like you know uh, look at look at Jack going all in on on Bitcoin and stuff, mm-hmm. and I swear I, I actually I, I don't have any Google stuff, so I couldn't check it. But people were claiming that the Google keyboard now has a Bitcoin symbol, mm-hmm. and every time I see stuff like this, what I see it as is Bitcoin infusing itself into the culture more and more, and the more and more this happens the more and more you realize like you, you can't stop that how do you how do you criminalize something that is just so like basic you know to the world you know like uh, it, it it becomes much more difficult to even imagine enforcing uh when you'd have to go and like get all of these software engineers to update their software to get rid of the little symbol that was in there and you have to go you have to go, uh, you know, throw your family members in jail and you have to go, you know, do all this stuff. Like the more people that are using it, uh, the harder it is to roll back. And this goes back to a thing that I started pointing out many years ago after I read Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. I introduced to Bitcoin the idea of, uh, you know, the, the Lindy effect and talking about the Lindy effect. And the Lindy effect is effectively a heuristic that says the longer a intangible good, like an idea or technology or whatever, uh, the longer it exists, the longer you could expect it to exist um, because it just becomes more enmeshed in the culture. So uh, this is why, you know, Nassim Taleb would point out, it's like, you know, you could probably not tell me a single book that was on the New York Times bestseller 
list last year. Uh, but you could probably name me a handful of Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with like music and whatever else. And in the same way, like because Bitcoin has now existed for 10 years, it's been you know both both a long and a short 10 years. Every day that it continues to exist, it just we can just expect it to exist longer and longer. And part of what part of what comes with that is just the fact that it's it's harder to roll back. And even like because the government is not this omnipotent thing that can memory hole everything, I'm sure they can memory hole a lot of stuff, and they have memory hole a lot of stuff. The more that Bitcoin finds its way into every nook and cranny of the cultural cultural conscience and our actual actual like day to day economic existence, uh, the harder it is to do so. Hmm. You know, it's one thing like this goes back to what I said, like you know, with the memory hole thing. It would be easy to memory hole if the only person who knew about it was was Satoshi. But when you have a global network of people developing, of evangelizing, of using, um, all this stuff, and even even, you know, uh, the the sons and daughters of esteemed politicians getting their hands on this, it becomes much more difficult to memory hole. So hmm. uh, I I just don't I I don't worry about the government. In fact, like I basically expect the the government to cave. I mean, some some jurisdictions will certainly uh, crack down on it to their major detriment, um, but I expect. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the best Western governments to uh, just kind of give in. It'll be for the better. And uh, one thing I will warn is if if you don't like us peaceful libertarian Bitcoin maximalists, you're going to really hate when there's uh, the violent uh, government Bitcoin maximalists who, uh, you know, don't put up with, with scams as peacefully as we do. Yeah, uh, I love your your war game spoof where you say that with Bitcoin the only winning move is to play. Yes, <laughs> that's that's a great that's a great one. Yeah, would you like to play a game of Bitcoin? <laughs> well, uh, Michael, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, man. I I know. So for anybody listening that doesn't know, uh, Michael is a co-host of the Noted Podcast, which is an excellent excellent resource, and I highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, thank and you I so know, much. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm a long time. Li- I think I started listening like after the first or second episode, and I've oh, wow. been hooked ever since. Um, and then I know you're speaking at Big Block Boom this summer as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's be... Bit Block Boom. I think is what it's called. Yes, and uh, you know, I actually can't remember the promo code for people who like the Nakamoto Institute. Um, unfortunately, I'll have to get that to you. But um, yeah, we're also. Uh, the I guess that's that's on a Saturday and the Friday night before we're going to be doing the second annual um, Satoshi Nakamoto Institute steak dinner. Um, so uh, and there's all kinds of stuff brewing up for that weekend. The, the weekend is going to be completely action packed. Um, someone's organizing a gun event so we can all go shoot guns. Hmm. Uh, that's Brian Lockhart. Uh, uh, Jeff Vandrew is organizing a barbell conference, little thing nice. to come talk about, you know, health and fitness. Um, uh, Pierre is organizing a, a lightning workshop. 
I think Justin Moon is uh, organizing a workshop as well. So it's, you know, uh, Dallas, I, I also forget which weekend in August, but that weekend in August in Dallas is going to be off the hook. <laughs> Very awesome. I wish I could make it to that. I've had half of those guys on this show and uh, I'd love to be there, but unfortunately I can't make it this year. But uh, And so is there any other projects or social platforms or anything that you want to plug of yours that you'd like to turn people to other than the Nakamoto Institute, of course. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I basically just recommend people, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter at Bitstein, B-I-T-S-T-E-I-N. Um, check out the Nakamoto Institute at nakamotoinstitute.org. Um, and we're, we're working on some cool stuff there. So hopefully maybe I'll come back on and, and talk about the stuff when it comes out. Um, and also the the noted podcast at noted.org n-o-d-e-d.org okay and i'll have links to all that stuff down in the show notes and uh, i'll try to get the the promo code i'll try to beat that out of michael in the in the after party uh, and get that in the show notes too for you guys um all right any parting words for the listeners uh read mises read rothbard and buy bitcoin i love it i love it All right, Mike, thanks so much for coming on, man. I I enjoyed this chat a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, guys, so real quick, I want to talk about Anchor. Now, I've been looking at trying to set up a podcast for a while, and I used to run a lot of my content on YouTube, and I was finding it really, really hard to monetize anything I was trying to do. And then I was looking into podcasting, and I found that most podcast hosts actually require you to pay upfront costs just in order to be able to host and monetize your content. And then on top of that, they take big cuts of all of your profits. Well, Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. Just go to anchor.fm start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters who are getting paid to podcast and hosting entirely for free. All right, guys. Very grateful to have had Michael here on the show. I think Michael is really interesting, and I've certainly learned a lot from him from listening to him and Pierre on the Noted Podcast. That is one of my favorite podcasts in the Bitcoin space, and they have a lot of tremendous guests and just a lot of really great conversations about Austrian economics and Bitcoin. I totally recommend you check it out. Oh, and I was able to get that promo code from Michael, so if you're interested on going to BitBlockBoom, use the promo code SN. I, that's Sierra November India, when you go to check out on BitBlock Boom, and you'll get a pretty sizable discount on your ticket order. The sooner that you buy your tickets, the better, because the prices are gradually increasing incrementally, and as the event gets closer and closer, tickets will be more expensive. So the sooner you buy your tickets, the cheaper it's going to be for you to go. And don't forget to use promo code SNI, that's for the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute to get a nice discount and you can hear Michael speak there along with a host of other great guests, many of whom have been on this podcast before, and I highly recommend you guys check that event out. So don't forget to check out BitcoinEchoChamber.com. You guys can follow me directly on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC. That's the letter C, all one word. Thanks so much for the continued support for this show. I really love my audience. You guys are awesome. Thanks for all the the likes and subscribes and uh, the feedback that I get has been 
generally very positive and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I'm just trying to do this so that I can learn and so that I can help other people uh, find the right information and find the right people to listen to and learn from. So that's all I got for this one, guys. I will see you next Sunday. Uh, I might be potentially rolling out a new series with my friend Rollo McFlugel where we sort of react to uh, other crypto and Bitcoin content in the space, sort of like sort of like the React videos on Twitch and YouTube that are so popular, but less meme and more like a serious discussion about, about what they're saying. All right. Thanks for watching, guys.